Hi, everybody. Welcome to Alumless. It is Friday, June 9th. Thanks for joining us at our regular time, 1130. I am Ryan Catherwood. That gentleman there sharing the screen with me is Chris Marshall. He is the founder, CEO, leader extraordinaire of Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting. Uh, great to doing? episode with you today, Chris. I uh, saw the number it? 26 on the screen right before and I was like, wow, that's a lot of episodes we've done. I know. We've been doing this for a little while now, and I think uh, I have a lot of fun with it. I know you do, too. And yep. um, we know the guests are just clamoring to get on the show, so we must be doing something right. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, well, uh, that may not be actually be true. There's not a lot of clamoring, <laughs> I have to be honest. Well, we're booked till, uh, through October, so that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. We're a modest but growing show here. Uh, if you're listening to us live, we'd be grateful if you'd say hello in the LinkedIn comments for the event. Just introduce yourself, say what school you work for, or if you work for a, another consulting practice or a different organization altogether, just let us know that you're joining us. We do often get a great conversation going in the comments, and uh, we can check in with you after the show. We are live today, so your questions will go right to myself, to Chris, or to our special guest, Dr. Angeli Grant, who we'll introduce just momentarily. But, um, you know, I think uh, a great topic for today's show, Chris, we, it's uh, one that I think uh, is worthy of exploring often. But uh, And we'll get into our topic around diversity, equity, and, and inclusion initiatives with Dr. Grant here soon. Uh, but it's been a month since we had a show. Uh, we quickly headed into the summer months. You know, it's a real busy stretch, I think, for folks in the alumni relations world, getting through commencement, you know, getting through major spring reunion weekends, things of that nature. I know I think a lot of people just took a deep breath uh, <laughs> this week in our space, and rightfully so. Uh, but what, what projects have you been working on, and, and what are you most excited about as we head into the summer? Yeah, the, there are still a few schools that are having their major reunion event like starting today. It's Friday, Saturday, and they'll end up on Sunday. So I think like next week, we'll, most of us in our field will be in that, you know, okay, the rearview mirror, <laughs> everything's behind and moving forward. But for us this summer, there's you know plenty of work to do. I, I do try, to be honest with you, to turn the volume down a little bit on the peak level of work so that some of July and some of August, I can have some family time because the school year is pretty busy. But um, I, I wrote, a, wrote a list of things that we're cooking. It's not that small of a list as I looked at it in totality. We have four schools that are wrapping up a strategic planning process with us, Denison, Buffalo, Delaware, and Temple. And I see Temple's on the call today. Shout out to Katie and the folks from there. Uh, we got a whole bunch of other folks, University of Washington and Lafayette on the line, Seattle, Guilford, and Shana from Jersey. Good to see everybody on. Thanks for joining in. I think we had a good good list coming into this call. So I'm excited about that. So so we have those strategic plans going. We're, I'm working on a our partner firm, Washburn McGoldrick, and I are working on feasibility studies with Gettysburg, uh, Swarthmore. Swarthmore, you got to make sure you say that next to the second R, Swarthmore. Yeah, the extra R in there, Swarthmore. <laughs> and then we just started University of Toledo end of this month. Um, and then uh, really interesting, the, the ones I'm, I'm excited about all, all clients are my favorite, of course, but the ones that are going to yeah. be interesting this summer is that we have this convergence of three institutions that are on a early-ish stage of combining alumni engagement and annual giving into the same shop under the same leader, NC State, Syracuse, and Indiana University, and all three schools I'm working with. And I want to have like a, a part focus group, part uh, therapy session with those three leaders who are all dealing with some of the same issues. So 
that'll be fun. Yeah, and actually, I was speaking with um, a friend, Kim Infanti, at Syracuse, and you're doing like a retreat with them yeah. in the, the summer. I know you often do retreats, uh, workshops, that type of thing. How, in your recent experience, how are you hearing goals, initiatives around diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging initiatives? Where are they in the conversation? Are they still really important? Do you feel as though things have uh, it's it's less important than it was a couple of years ago. Like where where do you get the temperature read on that? I think our expert coming on is going to be the right person to have this conversation with and see how yeah. Angelique feels about this. But my perspective is it's become more important, frankly, over the last yeah. several years. I'm hearing it more and more. Um, often you see it lie. So when we do strategic planning, for example, in a retreat format, we'll talk about values, vision, mission, priorities, guiding principles, and there's all kinds of language we use in it. But you know, often you'll see it in values. People will have either DEI, DEIB, or some version of that. And they're sort of starting out saying, this is important to everything we do. So at the very top. But we also see schools who will list it as a priority and say, of all the five things we want to do, this is a kind of a vertical. I think of it as a visual, like kind of a vertical pillar um, of a priority of work we want to get done. And then the other schools will, will say, we're not going to make it a priority. We're going to have these other four priorities. We're going to have this what I call an enabler or a guiding principle cut across all four of those priorities and make sure DEIB is present in all four of the things we're focused on. So I see both versions of it, even values. I have one institution who did a project where it was in their values, it's in their priorities, and it was also an enabler cutting across everything they did. It was that important. So my short yeah. answer to you is it's more than ever on the front burner for folks to talk about. So let's bring more in our expert. More integrated, more layered within the yeah. strategic plan, more emphasized without in hiring decisions and throughout programming. I think you're right. Let's go ahead and bring Dr. Angelique Grant out. Hello. Yes, she is. Grant, how are I'm you? Here. I'm good. How are you? Good to see you. Dr. Hi. Angelique Grant is the senior consultant and principal at the Inclusion Firm. It is lovely to have you on Alumnus with us. You work with advancement teams all the time at various stages of development when it comes to their DEIB programs. What are the most advanced teams doing successfully, would you say? Oh, great question, Ryan. Um, and it's so interesting because oftentimes we get the question, who's doing it well, right? And uh, we have to say there's no one perfect right. organization, just like we're not perfect individuals, if you may, right? We have great characteristics and qualities, but no perfect organization. So really to answer your question about, you know, what are some of the uh, the most, uh, you know, advanced teams who are doing it well, I'd, I'd have to say they're the ones who are really acknowledging and addressing the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Most teams um, have realized that DEI is really a necessary part of our society with the changing student and, and alumni demographics. Um, years ago, I, I can recall talking to um, organizations saying how um, even within our workforce, we're going to transition from um, you know millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y, from uh, you know forty percent representation to well, it was 25%, 40%, and it's going to increase to about 75% right. within the so next I, couple yeah. of years, yeah. right? So then um, those who are understanding that that cultural internal dynamic must change because of that, because they, you know, define DEI quite differently and really take that time to look inwardly 
And when I say looking inwardly, it's with um, sort of a, you, know, you know conducting or making sure that you have a DEI assessment, you know, in, in, in conjunction or combined with your employee engagement, if you may. Uh, Ryan, if you don't mind, I'm going to take yeah. us off script just for a second. I have the prerogative to do that, Angelique. You do. It's your job. <laughs> but this is an easy one for you. Give us two minutes on the inclusion firm, the work you do, sort of the scope of how you approach and what you work with clients on typically. Absolutely. So we're a national consulting practice that focuses on integrating diversity, equity, inclusion into nonprofit organizational environments. We do have you know, a couple of camping uh, companies who are clients, as well as one government agency, which is the CDC. But it's about what does it look like and how is it integrated into your environment, both from a workplace standpoint and especially with that externally facing lens, because as nonprofit professionals, especially in advancement, we are an externally facing sort of profession. Right. 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 Yeah. Not all universities, right? You mentioned a bunch of other clients and uh, and in the in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, you know, um, higher ed, a lot of higher ed, um, because uh, clients, because we've spent our time in higher ed, and a lot of our senior consultants work for higher education advancement shops, if you may, and yeah. um, especially the diversity, equity, inclusion in advancement book that was published by Case, new co-authoring, absolutely, a lot of yeah. um, clients there. Well, so that, that's so your compensation you, for this gig, um, by the way, Angelique. You get a two-minute commercial on. The, oh. <laughs> Everyone's already yes. Googled the inclusion. Right. It's already up over here. Ding, yeah. Ding, ding. yeah. <laughs> well, well, so when you do those assessments, Angelique, you go in and you're you're going to be asking a series of questions, right, mm -hmm. to get a sense of where every organization is on some of these central questions that uh, sort of give you an idea where that organization is so that you can provide that as a report card, you know? What are some of the questions that you ask that you wanna know from advancement leaders sort of as, about how they're thinking about DEIB? No, absolutely. Um, so to take a quick step back, when you have an assessment, right? We all know that the ENI is present, right? Understanding when and how it shows up in behavior is important because we always talk about awareness to action. You can be aware, you need to understand when and how it shows up, hence the importance of the assessment, and then adapting it and developing sort of behavioral change, right? In all of your areas within advanced stewardship, alumni relations, you know, databases, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to understand sort of the, the purpose of it, right? So when working with um, leaders and, and asking specifically, it's, I always start off in terms of how are you defining DEI? <laughs> because back in the day, I'm a Gen Xer. I don't know about you all. We won't talk about ages, <laughs> but baby boomers, Gen Xers, we define. Um, it used to be DNI back in the day, but it used to be uh, race and ethnicity and gender identity. Because the workforce has changed, because society has changed, we're talking about more identity aspects, whether it's cognitive, sexual orientation. Um, most definitely defining uh, diversity from uh, ability, religion, uh, political influence, you know, and so forth, right? How are you defining it from an organizational leadership standpoint? And what does that mean to you in terms of success? Like, what does success look like, right? We want to be inclusive, absolutely. Um, but really unpacking that with leaders 
in addition to also understanding how it shows up on a day-to-day basis. Um, what we saw, I wouldn't say many years ago, and, and even sometimes you know, here, is that people are looking at DEI as an add-on activity versus it being integrated. And that's what we are really good at. I have to make time to um, uh, talk about DEI or adding it to agenda, and it's oftentimes the last agenda item, and then we run out of time, and then we don't get to it quite. Yeah. But where, you know, how are you prioritizing? How are you investing in it? Why is it important? And I'm oftentimes seeing with some um, clients and, and you know nonprofits organizations across the country, it's really um, you know understanding from you know their lens who should own DEI, if you may. Mm-hmm. So having a conversation with leadership and you know, it's sometimes it's what you hear and what you don't hear and the words that come out may not necessarily come out explicitly. But oftentimes we may see DEI councils wait for leadership for their priorities and how they're defining it and then vice versa. When in actual, it's all our responsibility. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, so Chris, I mean, it's fair to say that those organizations that have made inroads, right, are the ones that have more integrated approaches to... DEI, right? That it is more than just setting aside the last agenda item, right? It is actually part of the culture of the organization. Where have you seen, I guess, sort of following up on that concept, Chris, sort of the integration component, uh, and maybe Angelique, you can comment on this too, is so what are some of the dynamics at play that showcase to you that this idea of integration? And when you Look at a shop. You're like, okay, that's that's really uh, a, a school that sort of stands out. I, I won't name any specific schools, but I'll tell you a few generalities that I've seen, Angelique, because there are places that are st- struggling or challenged by this. And yeah. for me, I, I actually think it starts with well, there's that overall commitment, and it becomes part of everything you do. It's not the last item on the agenda. That's sort of a cultural shift. It takes leadership to get it that moving that way. The next step for me, though, which I think is, is staffing. If you don't have a diverse staff, you're going to have a really hard time. It's not impossible, but it's certainly harder to build a diversity in your programming and have diverse programs out there and know what those audiences are looking for from a programming standpoint. So I always look at staffing makeup. And if you see a very similar looking staff across the board, they're going to have a harder time implementing this because most of these institutions we're working with, I'm sure, Angelique, true for you have a much more diverse current student body and more recent graduates. The older alums may look more homogenous and be okay with the traditional format and programming that we're putting out there. But our younger alums and our current students, especially who will soon be alums, are are much more diverse than ever before. And our staff have to reflect that. And that's the beginning of the journey to be able to understand what the audience is looking for and to you know, to get it right. Angelique, I'd love to hear you comment on this. I'm sure you have no. a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I agree with you on that. Um, looking at every department within advancement, stewardship, marketing, communication, um, you know, prospect analytics, how does DEI weave throughout? Are you having uh, team conversations about what are your goals, objectives? What is, what's important to us? Having that uh, not only become an agenda item, but it's a way of life, right? Mm-hmm. And to Chris's point, <laughs> when you have staff who are diverse, thought, background, um, no way, you know, right. visible, right, visible and invisible characteristics, it oozes through. That's how it so, becomes integrated. 
So what do you say to uh, advancement leaders? You probably find yourself giving the same advice often in different contexts, right? But you probably have some pretty uh, common bits of advice that you suggest to advancement leaders in terms of how they prioritize things. What What is that type of advice that you typically have? I know folks usually pay for that. For, with you. <laughs> Give a hint uh, at so it. This is a, so this is a handout <laughs> question. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about advice, I would say seek assistance and to be quite frank. <laughs> I know it's going to be. That sounds like well, something Chris would say. Chris would say that exact that's, that's what a business owner would say. Pipeline development. <laughs> yeah, you need help. That's the first step. <laughs> well, because oftentimes we think that we can solve it ourselves, right? Um, you find someone with lived experiences within your organization to help teach you and, and others internally with something that is very, um, it's, it's embedded into organizational development and change management, right? The DEI. We, we have a client where we're working solely in, you know, on uh, organizational development and diversity, equity, inclusion components just ooze out of it. And it's all inter, you know, twined. It's not like, again, I, I don't want to hammer it and say, oh my goodness, it's this add-on and, and people see it. But that's when you know leaders really understand diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity is counting heads. Inclusion is making heads count. We can't sit off into the silo alone. Say that right? again. That was really good. <laughs> diversity is counting heads. Counting heads. Yeah. Inclusion is making heads count. Okay. Yeah. So when looking for subject matter expertise, we can bring our lived experiences, but you also want to make sure that people are certified um, unconscious bias trainers, right? We have like four PhDs on, on our team, uh, researchers who have uh, led the DEI and advancement sort of, um, you know, for APRA and then some, right? But what you, you do need to do is take that moment to create a plan, an actionable plan, just like you would approach a campaign right? How would you approach um, anything else? If you were creating, let's say, an estate and gift planning program within your shop, what would you do, right? You create a plan, you invest in it, and you move forward with actionable items. You treat it the same exact way. Could you share a story about I mean, a recent success story that you've had with a client, someone that you've been working with, and and talk a little bit about some of their successful efforts to um, you know, bring to life some of your recommendations? Yeah, I would say right now, um, there are a few clients that we've worked with who are interested, they're interested in going beyond like sort of performative change. Uh, a perfect example, um, based on our research, about 55% of relationship managers and gift officers have experienced inappropriate behavior from external constituents, right? prospects, alumni, donors, et cetera. And we've had this significant um, increase in, um, you know, clients who are interested in navigating challenging conversations with alumni and donors. Well, we've provided that sort of professional development. We've seen it at conferences. We've all talked about it. Um, in fact, we've been doing it for five years, and, and et cetera. Right? When you look at it from that lens, addressing... And making sure that you're, you're providing some attention to your, your team in terms of where we are in, in society, because it's, it's challenging. 
to engage in with constituents who are, you know, um, you know, making or you know, providing microaggressions or saying microaggressions because it's it's not only verbal but it's also physical, right? Sexual harassment, homophobic sort of comments, right? Providing that training to your team, but coupling it, if you may, with the infrastructure. And those clients who are successful at it know that it's not only being supportive of your team, but what can we do in terms of an infrastructure to support our staff to communicate that it's unacceptable? Do we have a zero tolerance policy? Have we built um, sort of policies and processes, whether it's a code of conduct that we are publicizing during homecoming weekend, where we have a lot of, um, you know, events where people are drinking and enjoying themselves, but really setting parameters. And are our relationship managers, um, do they understand that they're supported so that they can be comfortable talking about the ENI, comfortable um, interacting with uh, external constituents, but also knowing that they're supported by leadership at the same time. Those are the organizations who are taking the time to say, times have changed, right? We can't do things like we used to do um, over the years, but how do we take a step back and really approach it from a meaningful and thoughtful way and not necessarily transaction? Yeah. And, you know, I think the conversation continues when we think not just about our, the way we're developing our teams and the culture internally, but also the partnerships with alumni, alumni volunteers. Uh, there's a, a, another whole sort of area to be considerate of, right, when it comes to developing these cultures. And, you know, Chris, I think one of the ways that we often bring to life type different partnerships in, in diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives is through partnerships with different groups, right? Maybe this is a Black Alumni Association, for example, that uh, is an affiliate organization of the university. What do you see as the role of, you know, an optimum partnership maybe that exists between a group like perhaps a, a, you know, Black Alumni Association, for example, or, and the university? Yeah. Groups is, as you said, it's been the avenue. And but before I go into my answer, um, I noticed there's a bunch of activity in the chat. If you're listening, you want to ask Dr. Grant a question. Now's your chance. Put it in and we'll ask your question. Curveball or slow slow pitch, whatever you want. We're going to give her the question that you pop. First one in the chat gets their question answered. Um, and I'll make one up if, if no one shows up. <laughs> Um, good news, but, we have a whole script of questions too. Yeah, we do. I, so yeah. I, I drive Ryan crazy. I go off script every now and then, Angelique. So, um, but on the groups, I, I was at a at a, at a I won't say name the school. So it was a elite private institution um, board meeting. You know, really good school uh, alumni board meeting. I'm talking about here, and they were talking about this topic of groups and affinities, and where do we identity groups? Where do we put our time and effort? Do we focus on a regional? Is it dividing by zip code? Is it dividing by their identities? Is it dividing by class year? And there was a question from the group about, I don't understand why people just don't show up because it's blank institution. Why is it just not enough? And, I, and I, my response was, and in the room was a, a DEI expert. So I, I, and I was asked the question. So I answered it like this. And I said, please give us the real answer. And she actually agreed mostly with me on this, which was that, you know, if we raise the flag of blank university and say, come up underneath it and join us under this tent. You'll get people who come out and will be comfortable in that environment and won't feel like they're part of that. If you raise the flag that says your class year, my 35th reunion is happening right now over the hill from where I sit right now. 
uh, and people will come out for their class year. Most of my efforts around my affinity, which is around athletics and swimming, but there, there's still a lot of people who won't, won't come out. Those flags don't attract them. They don't aren't drawn under that tent. By, and I said, sometimes it takes the black alumni flag, the Latinx flag, the LGBT flag to go up to get people to come out. And if we don't commit to doing that, we're going to still have the same traditional audiences we've always had coming up to our class events or regional events or our watch parties and our tailgates and not have enough uh, space for the people who, who want to come up under a different flag. That's how I think of it in, in these terms. So, Angelique, please tell me right or wrong. I want to hear your response. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I agree with you. I attended an HBCU, historically black college and university undergrad and a predominantly white institution. Mm. So I, I understand it from both perspectives, sure. yeah. right? And as um, a BIPOC alumni, right? Black indigenous people of color, BIPOC, yep. if you've heard the term, um, you're proud, but oftentimes ignored. Right. There's this perception that the institution has, um, and this is also based on some of our assessments with alumni, BIPOC alumni, that they've ignored the struggles and experiences of diverse alums, right? And they felt that they couldn't be really their full authentic selves as students. So then when going directly into engagement, it's like, okay, we're just going to ignore that. And then we want you to show up. Like you right. said, raise the flag. Just because you have an event doesn't necessarily mean I have to show up. Exactly. Is the event is the event um, really acknowledging something that I can identify with in terms of my experience? Are you reaching out to me because um, uh, we now it's sort of the thing to uh, look for and, uh, you know, bring back and engage diverse uh, alums as a result, because then I may then feel tokenized. Right. And then when I do attend an event, am I going to feel like an outsider, which I've heard a lot of diverse yeah. alums say that oftentimes. And then when institutions do reach out, there's this perception that they're only interested in their dollars and not necessarily yep. their experiences. And, and the raising of the flag metaphorically, right away you think of an event. But I'm, I also when I say that, I mean how we communicate with our okay. how we set up mentorship relationships and all the things that go with it. If the flags are always the ones you've always done, you're going to get a decent response from us, an audience you can predict. But when we start to think about other ways we segment and approach and organize our teams around uh, specific identity groups, you're going to get different people who show up for different reasons. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. There's a good question in the chat, Ryan. You want to ask Priya's question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Priya asks, besides hiring more diverse staff, what else can you do to help shift culture? I would also take take a look at um, your retention efforts. Um, retention uh, really drives recruitment, to be quite frank, because if you're not um, enjoying the time, uh, and clearly, oftentimes we we focus on diverse professionals in the workplace, but all professionals, right? When you're in the recruitment process and uh, candidates are asking you specific questions about why are you there, how you know, how has you know how has the organization provided you professional development, um, you know opportunities? If you can't answer that, recruiting may then shifts it on the other side, which then really is you know an indicator of what the internal culture is like. So everything from having a voice to um, are we do we are we provided these opportunities to network within um, our organizational environment? What about work-life balance, accommodations? There are 
just a, a, a wealth of, um, you know, organizational culture sort of components that you can take a look at to improve what that may look like. Uh, I, we are going to keep the conversation going in our bonus section. We're going to hit on some of the headwinds that may exist, I think, when it comes to, um, you know, how these narratives around diversity, equity, inclusion are are uh, being pushed against in certain areas. And we're going to explore many more topics with Dr. Grant in our bonus section. But um, before we sign off and uh, wish everyone a very fantastic weekend. Chris, could you share who is joining us on the next episode? I'm going to, I want to tease one topic I'm going to go off script on in the bonus section to get people listening now to join us for that, which is this, Dr. Grant, I want to talk to you about these topics and how they play out in the states of Texas and Florida, and increasingly so the state of North Carolina. I'm starting to see this sort of bubble up as well. How do we handle these issues? Let's go, let's get political in the second half of this, all right? <laughs> Well, that's, what I was, that's how I was going with it, but you made it very much clearer than I did. That's it, man. I want to make sure we get there. But our next guest is going to be really fun. Uh, we're going to go overseas to Dr. – not Dr., but Christine Fairchild from Oxford University. Christine just announced in the last week or so that she is stepping down from her role. She didn't want to say retiring. She's going to find her next thing. But yeah. she, after a long career, a long stint at Oxford, arguably one of the best alumni programs, certainly one of the best universities in the world, she'll be our guest um, joining us for – uh, two weeks from today, it's um, help me out yeah, June June twenty third. So yep, yeah, June twenty third. Uh, we are looking forward to chatting with Christine about her tenure at Oxford and and what she's imagining comes next, not just for her but for for University of Oxford as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to the great group that joined us in the chat that said hello. Uh, for Dr. Grant, we'll continue the conversation with you in just a moment. Uh, but to our live viewing audience, thanks a lot. And we'll see you on the podcast. And then again, back here, 1130, two weeks from today. Have a good weekend. Bye. See you, everybody. All right. We are back with our bonus segment with Dr. Angelique Grant. She is senior consultant and principal of the inclusion firm. We had a great live discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. At the end of the show, we kind of teased that we were going to really try to get into some of the more touchier topics, but they need to be talked about and they need to be discussed. And uh, Angelique is the best person to talk about them with. And so I thought it would be good, Chris, you know, you'd mentioned state of Florida, state of Texas, you said North Carolina, there are states, feels like there's, they're not just rhetorically pushing back on this, they're, they're legislatively pushing back Republican yeah, yeah. administrations in certain states. Uh, it feels like it's, you know, we had a lot of energy and momentum for these in initiatives that we've been discussing after George Floyd's passing several years ago, really kicked things into another gear. And then there's been a net sort of a political reaction to those, uh, the progress, I suppose, or the, the, the evolution of, uh, of thinking, particularly in the workplace. How do you make sense of it all at this moment? And you, you have to be working with clients right now who are feeling this pushback on the progress that's been made. Uh, what are your thoughts? I don't know. Well, is it me, Chris? There we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so many answers are roaming through my head. I'll start with saying I'm in Florida, first of all. (laughs) My home base is Miami, so I see it and and hear about it uh, every day. It's quite unfortunate because many are equating diversity, equity, inclusion um, the same as um, critical race theory, and we all know that's not the case. There's this whole layer of um, weaponizing the words diversity, equity, inclusion, and woke, right? When people typically would say woke, they're talking about being, you know, alert. Do you understand social justice? And what has happened in the political landscape is that's what's happened, right? Them weaponizing the words. So whenever you hear it, whether it's external constituents um, bringing it and surfacing it, you, you know, an institution's board of trustees now bringing it because people in the community and society are bringing it to the institutions, it becomes um, a little bit challenging. I uh, presented at NATOHI, which is the National Association of Diverse uh, Diversity Chief of Diversity Officers in Higher Education, and that was a huge topic that um, was discussed at great lengths. There are certain institutions where, um, because we we have some of them those clients, and I was in North Carolina not too long ago talking and working with them. Um, most of it's focused on the the faculty recruitment process. DEI statements, right? Whether you have to provide it as a candidate or um, from, you know, a, a departmental, academic departmental standpoint, if you may, and the admissions process. I want I will say that's what the the commonality, sort of that common denominator is. What we are seeing is that institutions are still remaining um, true to their organizational values. Right. At the end of the day, it's almost like you started off with mission, vision, values, Chris, at the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> at the session. Yeah. I don't think that will ever change because we're going to continue to make decisions based on institutional values. Um, will we see the political landscape uh, vary here and there, depending on who's op- who's in office and who's um, right. on the board or, uh, you know, and so forth? Absolutely. And institutions will have to respond to requests about um, where does diversity, equity, inclusion exist within the institutional setting? But what I'm also seeing is that um, advancement divisions are now tapping into their foundation arms to yep. utilize those opportunities to continue to do what they're doing yep. because they want to stay true to their to their mission, vision, and values as a result. So, um, yeah. You know, one of the... the- the warning flares that went up for me and you hear this through regular media and so forth, but on a client campus recently where uh, vice chancellor is reporting back and saying that we've been asked to supply what we've done, descriptions of those projects and how much money we've spent on diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. And it was requests that came from the state governor to the state system to provide that data. And all that's, those are not only yellow, those are red flags that are going up right there, but why is uh, you know the state government asking for that information? It's going to create issues. I mean, it's pretty but clear. Is, is it, yeah, I guess we should ask like, why would it be? Why is it bad that the state should ask for that? You know, in in my mind, if if they're going to, if if a, a, a state legislature rules that 
that no money can be spent on this or X money can be spent, then then they're then they're governing a an area where it's in my opinion it's not their business to be governing. It should be at the institutional level of, of what the values of the institution are. They should make the decision of whether or not they're investing X or Y or how much or at all. Um, and, and if the government state level or even worse federal were to intervene in that, that's where I have a problem personally. So I'm going to get <laughs> a little personal on that piece yeah. right there, but that's my answer, Ryan. Dr. Yeah, Grant, no, I, just, I figured I'd ask it while yeah, we're, it's while a we're good objective question. It, you know? yeah. it strikes then, me that, you know, the, the state universities and state systems taxpayer funded, right. I, I am all for diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, but I suppose, Inherently, I don't find a problem with the state asking what's how much money is spent on it. I guess the question is, is like, well, what are you going to do with that information? Right. Yeah. And yep. Fair. like, are you, yep. you know, are you going to try and cut it or what? But absolutely. And then when you think about inclusive philanthropy, hence why we're the inclusion firm, right? <laughs> when you think about it with that lens, it's authentically welcoming and engaging all individuals to participate in volunteerism and gifting, right? through all giving vehicles, right, and all giving channels, are we saying that's unacceptable at the end of the day? I think mm. that's where you have to start and ground yourself in, okay, you know, to your point, Ryan, what's the purpose of the request? Right. And if that falls into that, then what does that mean to us in advancement? Well, so what do you wish all advancement leaders understood about building sustainable engagement strategies that prioritize DEIB initiatives and outcomes? Um, I would say, one, um, over the past few years, we've found that people are very passionate about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, right? And it's a difference between being passionate and committed. With that passion... Then there was this conversation about leadership buy-in, right? Oh, we should have leadership buy-in. It's important. But now we have moved forward to leadership involvement. And to me, that's the difference between where we, be, we started to you know, become aware of it and passionate about it and supportive to what is my role in this work, right? Because you are, you know, what are you doing? Uh, are we just checking the box? When we think about diversity, everyone likes diversity, but sometimes they just don't like working with people who are different than them. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's like, oh, you're too different. I don't want to work with you. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, how are we working with people? Um, and, and what does that mean? And what is that difference? And how is it contributing to the overall vision and, and um, goals and objectives? Right. Um, so I, I would say uh, involved leadership is one. Secondly, understanding uh, everyone's leader, you know, whether it's the leadership team or the leader within themselves, are you really ready for it and staff ready to make some serious changes because it is uncomfortable. And when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, people want to show up as their authentic selves. Are you really ready for what that means? Right. Um, you know, you have to have some really serious, courageous conversations to get there. And then thirdly, um, I would say expect unexpected, uh, unfinished business, because we oftentimes will begin the journey and we'll start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. And we think after one hour workshop or two hours that, oh, we're done. It's great. We're there. But it's it's a journey along the way. We will make mistakes. And, and yeah. And sometimes the, the issues are so are incredibly deep seated. I, I worked at Washington and Lee University. You know, uh, 
former Confederate general in the name of the university, University of Virginia, where Thomas Jefferson, a slave owning, you know, white male was the founding father with buildings named after men of the, that era, right? And Longwood University had a Confederate statue across the street from the university and buildings named, you know, went through a renaming process, right? And and so there's, there's a lot of entrenched, embedded, you know, uh, uh, symbolism and and along the way, and and often I, it's 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 how the institution handles those situations and communicates with their alumni. Gettysburg College is a client of mine, obviously rife with all these same kinds of issues, given the error in the place location, and um, and they had an issue recently where the institution was criticized for being too woke by the way they handled and communicated, and we we hear this. The woke comment gets labeled pretty quickly. And again, it's a political yeah. spec where you're on the spectrum on how quickly you can sit, throw the word woke out. But, um, you know, it, it, it's real. It's out there. I feel I hear it almost every day in my conversations with alumni who are, who are volunteering for these organizations. I'm going to pull our question in from before and ask you this, Angelique. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think when we're working with advancement leaders, developing those relationships and partnerships with volunteers, uh, perhaps even those leading identity based organizations? What, 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 what do you think about what's the best help or advice or guidance you could give them thinking about from a volunteer management standpoint? Yeah. Um, and looking at it again from the volunteers in general, right? Volunteers or alumni, let's say alumni, because that's that student to alumni experience. A lot of alumni feel disconnected, right? right. It, whether we're talking about diverse, non-diverse, however we're defining it, Right they've lost a sense of what it means to be sort of an, an undergraduate in this contemporary sort of world, right? It's, it's much different than it used to be. Um, I found that um, people really want to know what's going on from a transparent lens. And I think sometimes we, we push it out in, in a coded kind of way, but not comprehensive. And Oftentimes we don't pull, whether it's our alumni leaders and um, those who are active uh, with our alumni association and, and say, you know, here's where we are. We would love your, your feedback. What do you, what experiences have you had, right? How do you understand or what do you understand about the institution right now that would, um, you know, not necessarily keep them from volunteering, but also what would they like to see more of um, moving forward? I found that that co-creation with alumni, whether it's um, programs, uh, events, um, you know, uh, communication, they're really, um, you know, just on the mark. They, they know what other alums are looking for in terms of engagement overall. And sometimes I think we take that for granted by just not asking them. What is it that they're they're expecting along the way? Yeah. Really leaning in, right, to Absolutely. the partnership, leaning into the ideas, you know, not being resistant to change and to creating new structures. I think there's a sort of a natural tendency to think of, well, how can the old structure or old sets of relationships, you know, work? And uh, when, in fact, you may need to just lean into a new approach and not be afraid to do it. And, and not be afraid to ask, because sometimes I think we want to solve it ourselves, right. but sometimes we just need to, to ask them, so what have you, what have yeah. you seen? From, um, there's this concept I like to coin, like shadow communities. There, there are a lot of alums who are sitting in the shadows, waiting 
and watching. And then there are these influencers who are there pulling them up, informing them. Mm. And, or I may see Ryan as an influencer and it's like, okay, so Ryan's involved. Now let me lean a little bit more into this yeah, because yeah. I know as, as a peer <laughs> alum yeah. that Ryan is someone who what's important to Ryan. And then I will respond based on that, you know, um, you know, mutual identity, if you may. Yeah. Um, a whole bunch of thoughts go through me. I, I like okay. the, the shadow <laughs> communities and, and, and those influencers are key and getting the right. And sometimes those influencers can take it the wrong direction and make it go, make it even worse. Now you have a, a renegade or a rogue group who wants nothing to do with the institution. I've had, I've had that personal experience actually with a, with an organization. So um, I'll ask the next one, Ryan, if you're okay. And I'll let you take us home. Um, what are you finding are the major blockers preventing teams from reaching goals for DEIB? Wow. I, you know, I would say that they're, I'd say resistors. When, so we wrote the DEI and advancement book um, probably back in 2018. It was published in 2020. And when the murder of George Floyd occurred that entire year and following, there were a lot of people say, well, we're just going to wait for DEI to blow over. Mm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like it was a moment right, right. in time versus a movement in society and in history. That to me, I think when you have people who see that and, and think that that's where we are um, as it relates to, because I've explained that the demographic shift and with demographic shift, it's cognitive, it's everything, right? Both internally and externally. When you have uh, leaders and individuals who are on the team who think that it will blow over, then I think you are going to be um, a little bit challenged on your team and with your program overall. So it's it's most definitely um, a roadblock. Those who are resistant to change. Yeah. yeah. And so when you look at evaluating universities, you come in, maybe you've done an assessment. You've gone back to the university later on. You've taken a look at the scorecard. Maybe it's a couple of years later. Now, what are some of the measurements at a college and universities you're helping guide them towards some of those success metrics? Yeah, I would first say taking a look at the identity data. Um, there are some advancement shops who are, um, you know, engaging in, in really exploring what their uh, database looks like. Right. In terms of whether it's the alumni or households. And if you have a medical school, that's a whole nother animal within itself. But your identity data combined with the engagement aspects of it. So let's say we have a database with um, alums, a certain amount of uh, alumni households. Do we um, understand who they are? Do we know their uh, attitudes based on certain sort of sets of questions and how they would like to be engaged? and uh, what's important to them and really creating a benchmark with that because we're seeing a lot of institutions now taking a step back saying okay we're just going to have a bunch of records mm -hmm. but in order to measure something you have to understand when it shows up how it shows yeah. up who are these people the where are they right? interested yep. exactly exactly do you recommend a, a building on it do you recommend a regular alumni survey i would absolutely Absolutely. If you haven't had a census sur survey or an add to survey or anything along those lines, I would say start now and make that a priority, whether you're in a campaign coming out or, or you know, going into one. That's foundational. 
it feels like it's something to do regularly, you know, like sort of like it's part of a healthy advancement organization. And in particular, I think to get assessments on smaller communities, right? Uh, what, how you may be able to engage different groups um, that are sort of segmented out while you're focused on advancing DEIB initiatives. Yeah, just like um, salary equity um, assessments, um, when you, we look at our newest uh, U.S. News and World Reports, we want to benchmark it on something. Again, you, you start placing some of these important factors um, at the same level and, and prioritize them. Prioritize them just like you would any other benchmark that you're working on with the institution. So prior to starting starting your consulting practice, the inclusion firm, you spent a bunch of years on college campuses working in both alumni and development roles. And you spent five years uh, working for Aspen Leadership Group. You're doing quite a bit of executive search, along with uh, I'm sure lots of other uh, lots of other things in that role. But what did you learn about helping schools hire diverse candidates for le- advancement leadership positions? Well, I, I will say this. I'll. I'll um... I'll answer it and then the other way around. Having worked at a, a HSI, his, uh, a Hispanic serving institution, and have you know, I'm in Miami, so every all of <laughs> my career, I, I you know, the talent management realm, which is a part of what we do at the inclusion firm, is something that I stay true to. Um, when we think about diverse hiring, we oftentimes hear, and I'm quite sure you've heard of it as well, right? I'm full in favor of diversity, but I don't want to sacrifice quality for diversity, right? That buzzword. Well, the thing that I would share with um, institution is that no one really wants to or easy. We're not even recommending that you sacrifice sort of your quality of, of building a diverse candidate pool or hiring a diverse candidate for the sake of doing it. And when you look at it from a diverse candidate's perspective, whether you're talking ab- ab- about ability or sexual orientation or gender identity, no qualified candidate wants to be considered um, for, let's say, diversity their identity. Right. <laughs> yeah. So building this sort of inclusive culture, was a, which was a part of that, that last question, doesn't necessarily mean you have to, to sacrifice quality or success or diminish your expectations and in, in your talent, right? Um, but also understanding the varied backgrounds, the abilities, and what someone with a different lens and cultural contribution can bring to your team, thoughts, ideas, because we've been touching on that the entire conversation, right? That's important. The hiring manager needs to know it. The search committee needs to know what that is as well. But also ensuring that candidates um, know that as well, coming through in general. And knowing that they will be selected based on merit as a result. So helping unpack that, that sort of myth and that fallacy that, oh my goodness, we're, we're diversifying our candidate pools, which means that we, we have to decrease our, our excellence or our quality. It's just a myth. Hmm. Interesting. And so I, just to follow up on that, you know, you have as a searching for a diverse candidate pool on behalf of clients, it doesn't, what is the, uh, how many folks are in our space uh, with diverse backgrounds? I mean, what, what was the, is that a challenge to help universities 
diver, you know, diversify their candidate pools? I mean, what did you uh, sort of run across as you were as you were doing that? Yeah, so I I shared that understanding what diversity means to the organization, right? Every organization will have a different composition. In our industry, we're about 70% female in advancement, which we know. Yeah. It's about 11 to 12%, um, let's say, Blacks. And then, you know, other uh, identities, whether it's Hispanic, Latinx, and so on and so forth, let's say, coupled with 30%, right? So given the, the racial demographics, the gender identity, I told you I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm going <laughs> to leave on those. And then we start looking at other areas of diversity. Muslim, are you a Jesuit school? Are you Presbyterian, right? right. right? right. Ability, religion, political. And the, the, the list kind of um, continues in terms of our identity within itself. When you start embedding, because here it goes back to the integration, diversity, equity, inclusion in into the entire attracting um, diverse candidates, hiring and onboarding. If you're asking a DEI question along the way, right? If you are also understanding what that need is for that team, right? Because I, it may be someone with a veteran status to work with our alumni, yeah. because we realize that we don't have that component. How are we weighing it up against our rubric, our hiring rubric? Does it get more weight? Because they're contributing something that's a gap that's on our team, right? right. right? So find the gaps, understand what that is, define diversity and move from there versus what oftentimes we, when we think about diversity, it's almost code for saying we want a, a BIPOC on our team. Right, so just right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you, you, can, you, you can have an, uh, someone who's my age, white, male, uh, who's who's LGBT and uh, you, gay in that example, and and you would never know that from looking at the population, but you have a diverse perspective in that pop, in, in that you know I, I get where you're going with it because the, the definition of diversity is when I started at Cornell. I told Brian the story yesterday. I started in my job at Cornell. Uh, I walked into the meeting uh, with 28 women in the room and I was only male and there was not a, a men's restroom in the building where I started working at, <laughs> at that moment. So, um, yeah, I a different kind of diversity challenge. <laughs> it is still the same game. Chris, I had to do you know, I don't, with a, a, I didn't a know that I knew that number about all women, 70%. Sorry, oh, Angelina. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, Chris, and it, this will be very quick. I had, I had a search where the entire team was a hundred percent female. And when we were talking about diversity, it was gender yeah, <laughs> and we yeah, hired yeah. A, a male. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, before we let you go, Angelique, we always like to finish our conversations around inspiration, uh, whether it's for you personally or in your work for the inclusion firm or your work in advancement more broadly, where do you get inspiration? What do you read? What do you listen to? Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm an audible person. So I do have a subscription to audio books and given the the intense travel, being a consultant, it, it works out, right? Mm -hmm. So I um, anything on the realms of DEI, there's a switch by Chip and Dan Heath to um, nice racism, you know, Robin D'Angelo. Uh, I, I haven't. Uh, I have the 19, I'm sorry, the 1619 project by Nicole Hannah Jones. I'm looking forward to that. And I know there's a film coming out with that, but um, just a whole variety, even Karen Osborne's book uh, I read 
here it is. Getting the right. If we all know Karen, oh no, that's Hamilton. <laughs> there also a good and inspiring. <laughs> Sorry, <book>. right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, novels. She's an advancement um, consultant for many, many years. Phenomenal. Who is now writing uh, romance novels as well. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was great to have you. I know a lot of our friends at Washburn and McGoldrick were uh, with us today watching the feed. It was great to meet you. We've chatted for just the first time today. I know you and Chris mm -hmm. have known each other for a while, but uh, we're grateful to have your expertise on alumnus to, to share with all the folks in our field. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. This has been now, great. I will, I will add to that as well. I'm going to add a quick story, Ryan and Angela, your reaction to it. Um, my 20-year-old son, uh, I invite him to join me at a Christmas party, holiday party this past year. And I said to him, uh, it's it's all 50-something people. So it's all like people his dad's age and, or older. And he said, come on, don't, I just go from a networking standpoint. Just go. So we go to the uh, holiday party, and he's in there. And somebody asked me what I do for a living. I described to them. And they, they, they go on to tell me that they are no longer going to be giving to their institution, elite, private, you know, place that we all know. Because the institution is too woke. And then she spent the next five, with my son next to me, five minutes telling me about why institutions are too woke and what the problem with that is. And my son politely listened, didn't say a word. We get in the car to drive home later on. And as soon as he gets in the car, the door closes. He goes, Dad, isn't that what higher education is supposed to be about? Being woke and looking at, picking your head up and looking at different issues and from different points of view. And I said, Thank you. And I got out of the car and hugged him. <laughs> he got the point. So the world is not black and white. It is gray. And yes. higher education provides you the tools to see it that way. Right. I was so happy that he he got to he got to that realization that this person anyway. Good parenting. High five. <laughs> Send him my way. No. <laughs> well, we'll conclude things on that parenting pat on the back for Chris. And no, I wasn't for that. Uh, Thanks again, Angelique. It was great to, to see you. And um, Chris, pleasure as always. We'll yeah, good to see you, Ryan. Angelique, thank you so much. This is really a pleasure. All right. Bye thank now. Bye.